come into Genesis chapter 4. We got halfway through it last week. We left off on verse 16 when Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And most of what we have this morning is genealogies. And in order to prevent you from following Cain to the land of Nod, I'm going to ask you to take out a pen and paper, and we're going to write some stuff down as we move through. Not immediately, but just have it with you and have it ready, because you'll want to jot down some of these names that we go through. I hope you all caught the Nod reference. I thought that was funny. (laughs) Didn't know if we, we got that one. Okay, please open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 4. We'll start in verse 16, read through the rest of chapter 4, and then we'll end up continuing through chapter 5. 4.16, then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begot Mahujael, and Mahujael begot Methushael, and Methushael begot Lamech. Then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other, the second was Zillah. And Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. And as for Zillah, she also bore Tubalcane, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubalcane was Namah. Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. There's some fairly cryptic little sentences in there, and not everyone's clear on what it means, and we'll try to flesh those out as we go through, but there are a couple that are debated, and I'll give you a couple of renditions of what that could mean. Verse 16, back up the top, then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. It seems that Cain made this very deliberate choice to remove himself from the presence of God. I mean, we know that he didn't come to God like he should have earlier in the chapter. That offering from Abel was accepted by God, and that made Cain very angry. It actually says that he smoldered with anger. And that ended up causing Cain to kill his brother Abel. And we saw that whole passage play out last week. And it says here that Cain went to dwell in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. The word Nod is literally translated as wandering. 
This is the land of wandering. So Cain dwelt in the land of wandering, which is really where all of us are before coming to the Lord, right? We're just kind of going about doing what we please. We're wandering. There's no home base there. And it looks like that curse that God pronounced on him in verse 12 is holding true. He said, a fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. Cain was destined to be a nomad. And here he's trying in the next verse to skirt that promise, that curse that God places on him by building a city. So we see, and Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch and he built a city. So Cain built this city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. So Cain's trying his best to get away from being a nomad and wandering all over the place. This is a different Enoch than the one that you immediately think of. This is not the Enoch that walked with God, who was taken so he didn't see death. This is a different Enoch. We'll come to that other Enoch later. This Enoch is descended from Cain. The other Enoch that walked with God that we'll see in chapter 5 is descended from Seth. And so there is a distinction there that we need to make. And you'll see Lamech. There are also two Lamechs, one from Cain's line and one from Seth's line. Lamech from Seth's line is the father of Noah, and we'll see him later as well. These are two totally different people. These aren't necessarily good people, as we'll kind of start to uncover. But in building this city, it seems that Cain is trying to defy God's punishment. And it looks like he's really trying to put down roots there. But of course, the words that God has spoken are true. And everyone seems to ask the question, where did Cain get his wife? You know, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. Where did Cain get his wife? The first question that you ask someone who asks you that question is, well, why are you so concerned with somebody else's wife? You know, that kind of breaks down some barriers and then you can get to talking. But it's an interesting question, but it's also really simple and people spend way too much time on it. So I'm not going to. Cain married one of his female relatives. Okay, and that catches us off guard sometimes when we hear it today. It wasn't necessarily a sister, could have been, but wasn't necessarily. There was probably a lot of other relatives that had populated the earth by this point could have been any of his female relatives. And this didn't pose any threat of producing children with genetic abnormalities. That wasn't a concern here because remember Cain was Adam's son. Adam was a direct creation of God. Cain was literally the first generation to be born. And Cain was actually the first person to be born. Okay, so the genetic mutations and the randomness that we see in our genetic code today would not have been present then. So they did not need to worry about the, all the problems that come with marrying close relatives. So that's where Cain got his wife. It was one of his female relatives. And it wasn't until the law was given to Moses that God actually forbid marriage within a family. 
So it wasn't until that time. And that was about 2,000 years after this. So it was, it was well after. And evidently by that time that the law was given, it did begin to pose a danger. There was that breakdown in the genetic code, and that's when God puts a stop to marriage within a family. Now, I've mentioned Henry Morris several times. Um, He just did really good work. And he worked out some conservative figures for the population of the earth in Cain's day. And he extrapolates that to the flood, but we're not going to worry about that yet. He supposed that the average age was only 400 years, only 400 years old at the average age. When we look at these genealogies, it's probably much longer than that. He takes the conservative approach. And he supposes that each family only had six kids, three male, three female, also a conservative number for how long you're living. He figured that before Cain died, there was at least a population of 120,000 people. Okay, so Cain lives, what, about 800-ish years? So in that first 800 years, the population expanded to about 120,000 people as a conservative number. There likely was much more. Because if you think about it, the long lifespans hit it on two different fronts. So you can produce more kids if you're living longer and people aren't dying as quickly. So the population is really robust, even in these early years. Verse 18, to Enoch, Cain's son, was born Irad, and Irad begot Mahujael, and Mahujael begot Methusael, and Methusael begot Lamech. So now we're really getting into the line of Cain. We do see... L on the end of several of these names, and that L means God. So there was at least some consciousness of God, even in this line of Cain. We're really not sure to what extent they served God or really cared what he thought, but that consciousness of God is there. Some of these names do make reference to God. And we're going to camp on Lamech for just a moment and his sons because there's a few important things that we can take from verses 19 through 24. Then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zillah. This is the first record of a man taking more than one wife. So polygamy or bigamy. Um, and this just turns out to be trouble, to be quite honest. You you never find an account of polygamous marriage in the Bible when it works out to be peachy. You know, there's always some contention there between the wives. I can't imagine having two mother-in-laws. Don't tell Beth I said that. (laughs) But it just doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? For legal purposes, that was a joke. (laughs) the first polygamous marriage here. Um, God gives no approval anywhere for polygamy, but Lamech doesn't really seem to care about that. 
And that's kind of the sense we get from this guy. Apparently, these two wives were beautiful. They were physically attractive. Ada means ornament, and Zillah means shade. So physical lust could have been Lamech's main motive for marrying these two ladies, but we can't know for sure. And you'll notice that there's no L on the end of Zillah's name, and that's good. That would be Godzilla, and that's not what you want in a wife. So when you see an opportunity like that, you got to take it. Another possible motive for Lamech marrying these two ladies could have been his higher capacity to produce sons with two wives. At this time, with the lack of organized government, society was probably just organized based on the size of individual clans or tribes. And if you had more sons, of course, your clan would be stronger, larger, you would, in essence, dominate. So that could have been another motive. Again, we're just not really sure. Verse 20, and Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the harp and the flute. And as for Zillah, she also bore Tubalcain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. So these three sons of Lamech are specified as contributing certain advancements to their society. Jabal developed tents, and with the tent comes the ability to carry your home with you, which would definitely aid nomads, right? Perfect for a nomadic lifestyle. And Jabal also formalized systems for raising livestock. And that would have been extremely important for society as well. Jubal invented both stringed and wind instruments. See the harp and the flute. Some Bibles translate flute as pipe. So we get the idea that it was stringed and wind instruments. And he was apparently gifted at playing them as well. And Jabal and Jubal's half-brother, so his mother was Zillah, was Tubalcain. And it says that Tubalcain developed metallurgy in both bronze and iron. And this would obviously allow them to craft these metal weapons that would give them a really sizable advantage in warfare, but they could also craft more durable everyday items like bowls and pots and pans and all the stuff that you need. So advantages in this civilization. And it's not till much later that we actually see Israel adopting metal weapons. That's just an interesting note. And it makes you wonder if this was not pleasing to God at this time. You know, the line of Cain developing all these things, where did this technology come from? It leaves some questions that we don't have answers to. But together, these developments were key in advancing the Cainitic line. And it's interesting to note that this account puts these advancements much earlier in the timeline of human history than secular anthropologists do. So it's right here, basically at the dawn of time, when all of these technologies develop. These elements of urbanization 
agriculture, animal husbandry, and metallurgy are all markers that anthropologists use to classify the emergence of men from the Stone Age into what we would consider civilization. And so they're, they're much earlier in the timeline in the biblical narrative. But more and more modern archaeological discoveries are actually verifying this account. They're verifying these higher levels of technology that the really early men possessed. And that all serves to support the biblical record of events. And it does seem likely, at least to me, that these men in Cain's line who took to raising livestock were probably doing so for the meat. Now, you would rightly raise the objection that God didn't allow men to eat meat at this point. You're right. God did not put his stamp of approval on that at this point. But seeing as how Cain knowingly removed himself from the presence of the Lord, he obviously didn't care that much about what God thought. It makes sense to me that his progeny, his descendants, would also not care that much. And so I, I think that it's not much of a stretch to think that they probably were meat eaters a little too early. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. And this is just kind of thrown in there, and we're not really sure why. This is the only sister that they mention. We don't follow Nema's progeny anywhere, and Cain's line is left here at Lamech's children. It seems a little bit strange that Tubal-Cain's sister would be included here, but I do think that there's probably a good reason for it. Just don't know what that is. Now, verse 23. Then Lamech said to his wives, and guys, I'm not recommending that you try addressing your wife like this. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, Listen to my speech. That would not go over well today. Now, we're going to see Lamech speaking here, okay? And some believe that this was actually a poem that was written by Lamech and read to his wives. Um, Again, there's not a real good way to tell, but we do have what he said. Lamech himself was of the seventh generation from Adam on Cain's side of the family. In chapter 5, we'll see Enoch, the Enoch that walked with God, who was also the seventh generation from Adam, but on Seth's side. So you have this juxtaposition here of Lamech on Cain's side and Enoch on Seth's side. We get the idea that they're very different individuals. Lamech is a a bit power-hungry, I would say, and very prideful according to this record. And Enoch, we know, pleased God. That was the testimony that he left. And so we see that contrast between the line of Cain and the line of Seth. It certainly makes a powerful statement regarding how each of these lines regarded God. Seth's revered God and Cain's basically removed themselves from the presence of God. 
Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. Lamech doesn't really care. Um, He just wants his wife's attention, doesn't care how he gets it, because there's something important he has to tell them. And this is what it is. He says, for I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. It seems that Lamech has killed someone in self-defense. And that's kind of the insinuation of this sentence. He's killed someone in self-defense. But there's also this insinuation that he could have subdued this young man without killing him, had he chosen to. But he takes the killing route, apparently. And that seems to fit the character of this man. I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. Lamech seems to be this macho man whose pride gets in his way. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech 77-fold. And this is one of those statements that's kind of strange to us. We're not sure what's really going on here. But the statement is definitely a reference to verse 15. When God said, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. That was part of his promise to Cain that he wouldn't be killed. Now Lamech takes that and twists it a little bit. And this line of speech from Lamech actually seems to be a sort of blasphemous outburst against God. Again, probably from a place of pride in Lamech. He seems to be saying, well, if God promises a sevenfold vengeance on anyone killing Cain, I myself guarantee a 77-fold retribution on anyone who even hurts me. So there's, there's a bit of this arrogance, pridefulness, um, and self-servingness in there. And that's kind of how I take this. And although there isn't complete agreement on how we treat this, this approach seems to be consistent with the only other reference to it in the Bible. You'll find that in Matthew 18, 21, and 22. Then Peter came to him, Jesus, and said, Lord, How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus says to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And that seems to be a reference back to this kind of outburst from Lamech. Someone obviously sinned against Lamech to his hurt. And Jesus seems to reference his quip about avenging himself 77 times when he tells Peter, yeah, you got to forgive your brother up to that many times. So it kind of fits all of the pieces together for us. Verse 25. In verse 25, we stop dealing with the line of Cain. Okay, this is really important to see. We stop dealing with the line of Cain and move to the messianic line of Seth. And this is also important because we're starting back at Adam now. Okay, so we've followed Adam had Cain. We followed his line for a little bit. It's cut off there. We don't see anything else from the line of Cain. 
we're starting back up with Adam and going tracing the line towards his son, Seth, and on down there. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. There's really no reason for us to think that Adam and Eve didn't have more kids between Abel and Seth. And I personally think that they had a lot of kids during that time, although it doesn't really specify either way. It just says that after a while, she had another son, Seth. So now Eve is bearing another son, and there seems to be this realization, maybe a revelation from God, that this son is the appointed one. He's the one through which the Messiah would come. And we know that Christ comes from this line of Seth. And being on this side of history, we have that very important knowledge. The name Seth comes from a root meaning appointed. And Eve here doesn't just say that God has appointed another son for her. This is an important distinction. She says, God has appointed another seed for me. Seemingly recognizing that this would be the messianic line. It's not just the son that she's worried about, but it's his progeny as well. Verse 26, and as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. The name Enosh means mortal or frail. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Now this is a really difficult phrase to grapple with in English. And there's a lot of commentators and teachers that I personally respect who go very different directions with this. And some, it's not like they just disagree slightly. Like some take this as being a very positive thing and some take it as being very negative. And so there there is a, a disagreement here. Men began to call on the name of the Lord. I do lean slightly in one direction, but I also hold that view very loosely. So I'll give you a quick rundown of the two major thoughts here. First, the positive. Some see this as saying that men started calling on the name of the Lord. And some see it as prayer. Some see it as just regarding God as their Lord. And this is the most natural reading In the English translation, you know, it seems to be positive, but that makes it sound like no one had called on the name of the Lord in the past. And we know that Adam did. Abel did. He called on the name of the Lord. So that doesn't make great sense to me. If this is the time when men started calling on the name of the Lord, what do we do with this? So up to this point in time, sure, they've made their mistakes. You know, humanity's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but for the most part, they've at least observed the Lord. 
they've recognized that he is the Lord and they have observed him. This here seems to be the beginning of the apostasy in the days of Enosh. Now, remember that Enosh is the second generation after Adam. So it goes Adam, Seth, then Enosh. And on Cain's side, this would be roughly around the time of Cain's Enoch. Okay, that would go Adam, Cain, Enoch. So it's possible that this is even a reference to the line of Cain that began profaning the name of the Lord. And that's how the people who take the negative view, they'll usually read it as, then men began to profane the name of the Lord. And there is that insinuation in the Hebrew. So that is a founded belief there. And there are a host of traditional Jewish sources that support a negative view of this, calling on the name of the Lord. And even some ascribe the origin of idolatry to the days of Enosh. And there are several sources. You can talk to me afterwards if you want to check those out. But it would also make more sense that this was the beginning of apostasy, not a revival, when we get to Genesis 6-5. And there the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It seems like there's a downhill slope from this time of Enosh to the flood. And this negative view would support that. Genesis 5. Now, as we crack into chapter 5, I do want you to pay attention to the names of these descendants of Adam. And if you've got your pen and paper out, that'll be helpful. I'd like you to write down the names and their meanings as we go through. There's something cool we'll show you at the end. And to get you started, we've already talked about Adam meaning man. And the word Adamah is actually the same word that's used in the text that's translated as man, also translated as Adam. So depending on the context there, you can translate it either way. So Adam means man. You've got Seth, meaning appointed, and Enosh, meaning mortal. And by the way, these names are repeated in 1 Chronicles 1, 1 through 4, and in Luke 3, 36 through 38. That tells us that this account was considered historically accurate by both Old Testament authors, other than Moses, and New Testament pretty interesting. So this is a certainly historical account of these men. Verse 1 of chapter 5, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. And we see a very similar phrase used in Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In the day that God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. Some of your translations there where I read mankind, you'll read Adam. And that's just a discrepancy between how you translate that word Adamah. So again, 
can translate it man or Adam in the day they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. This is just kind of a quick recap of previously recorded events in chapter 1. And the first sentence of chapter 5 is probably a postscript that belongs in chapter 4, wrapping up that Toledoth of Adam, the book of the generations of Adam. Now we have, in effect, a different record coming in after the first sentence of verse 1 of chapter 5, written down by Noah, this original source document. And then Moses pulled from Noah's writing to compound the book of Genesis, right? So we've got these primary source documents that Moses was probably referring to. Verse 3, and Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So this does kind of give us a frame of reference for the timeline of that first generation. Seth was born when Adam was 130 years old. Okay, so that helps us kind of frame that up. This also contains an important phrase. Adam begot a son in his own likeness, after his image. Whereas God made Adam in his image, Adam's son was after his image. They take after Adam in sinfulness. And that's why the human race is referred to as sons of Adam and not sons of God. Adam was a son of God. Um, I think that was even referenced in that passage in Luke. Whenever we are born again, we become sons of God. We are a new creation, a direct creation by him. If you're not born again, if you're not a Christian, Jesus doesn't live in you. You're a son of Adam, and you need that rebirth. Now, verse 4, after he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Adam lived... 930 years. That is a remarkable lifespan. And all the things that he had seen, I can't even begin to imagine. You know, he was created in the garden. God created Eve from his side. The things he saw there, unimaginable. The forage, the greenery, the life teeming in the garden. And then getting kicked out of the garden, having to walk into a desolate world. Nobody else there except his wife. Had to stick together. The things that he would have seen, remarkable. And I've never been musically gifted, but how cool would it be to say, oh, next century, I'll pick up playing the guitar. You know, next century, I'll get that down. Now, we can't say that today. Maybe the next decade. Well, that'd be pretty cool. Verse 6, Seth lived 105 years 
and begot Enosh. After he begot Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Even though it tells us how long the father lived, before they had the listed sons, there's nothing to say that these were their firstborn children. They very well could have had kids before the recorded one. These are just the men from whom the Messiah would come. And that's why we even have this genealogy. It's recording the line of Christ. One of the requirements in Revelation 5 for someone worthy to open that scroll, the title deed to the earth, was for them to be a man, a descendant of Adam. That's one of the requirements. And these genealogies of the lineage of Christ provide proof that he was, in fact, a descendant of Adam. Verse 9, Enosh lived 90 years and begot Canaan. After he begot Canaan, Enosh lived 815 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Now, Canaan means sorrow. Canaan means sorrow. Canaan lived 70 years and begot Mahalalel. After he begot Mahalalel, Cain lived... 840 years, and had sons and daughters, so all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. Mahalalel means the blessed God. It comes from two two root words, Mahalel, meaning blessed or praise, and El, meaning God. Mahalalel, the blessed God. Verse 15, Mahalalel lived 65 years and begot Jared. After he begot Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. Now Jared is born. His name is easy because it is a Hebrew verb, Yarad meaning shall come down or descend. Jared shall come down. Verse 18, Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. After he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. So Jared, Yared, has a son and names him Enoch. Enoch means teaching or commencement. Enoch, teaching. And this is the Enoch that you think of when you hear Enoch. This is the Enoch in Seth's line. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. Now, we've probably all heard of this figure, Enoch. He's pretty well known as far as Bible characters go. 
and rightly so. He's mentioned in the New Testament in a couple places as well. This says that he walked with God for 300 years. And that is after he had Methuselah. Whether he walked with God before that, we don't know. It doesn't specify. But for at least 300 years, this man, it says he walked with God. Hebrews 11.5 tells us that Enoch had this testimony, that he pleased God. And what a great thing to have said about you, especially recorded in the Bible. You know, that's the testimony we all should be striving for, to please God. And each one of us should be aspiring to walk with God and please Him. And walking with God is a privilege available to you today. This is not something unique to Enoch. It's not something only he can do. We can walk with God today. Colossians 2.6 As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So walk in him. That's what we're striving for. Verse 23. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now this is a bit of a strange phrasing, for God took him. But we have an inspired translation of this phrase in Hebrews 11.5 that helps us clarify what is meant by, and God took him. Indeed, Enoch did not die physically. Hebrews 11.5 says, By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. He was not found because God had taken him. And of course, that passage in Hebrews is referencing this passage in Genesis 5. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. So this really does mean that God took Enoch so that he didn't die. And this whole picture is interesting because we'll often relate the end times to the time of the flood, and rightly so. Jesus says that's a comparison you should make. And we'll recognize that there were three groups of people in the time of the flood, You have those who perished in the flood, those who were preserved through the flood, and those who were removed before the flood. Enoch being the one that was removed before the flood. And we may hit that again when we get to the flood. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it here. Um, It is also interesting that both Enoch and Elijah, the two men who didn't actually die, prophesied, both of them, from the middle of some of the most wicked times on earth. There was just absolute perversion in both of their societies, and they were both taken to be with God. Enoch was in this antediluvian society where wickedness was abounding. They were getting to the point where God said, okay, send the flood. And Elijah was prophesying during the reign of King Ahab. We know that Ahab was the most wicked king that they saw. 
the church is headed for the same destiny as these two men, Enoch and Elijah. As the world keeps getting more and more evil, and we know that's the direction it's going, we must continue professing the name of Jesus and striving to walk with God, right? We're on the same path as these guys. Enoch's son, Methuselah, is an interesting, interesting character. His name comes from two roots, Muth, meaning death, and Shalak means to bring or to send forth. So Methuselah means his death shall bring, or dying he shall send. And for our purposes this morning, we're going to go with his death shall bring, or Methuselah. Now, we do know that Enoch was a prophet. The oldest prophecy uttered by a prophet, not by God, in the Bible is recorded from Enoch. Do we know where to find that prophecy? It's not where you would probably think. It's in Jude, verses 14 and 15. Let's actually, let's read through that prophecy real quick. It's interesting because this earliest prophecy by a prophet points to the second coming of Christ. All the way back there. Uh, We know Enoch lived before the flood. Jude 14 and 15. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, speaking of false teachers, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. It's a lot of ungodly there, right? And it speaks to the fact that society is going to become more and more perverse as we get closer to the end. So I did want to read through that just to get some context on Enoch, but that is kind of a side note there. But Enoch, being the prophet he is, seems to have received some kind of revelation from God concerning his son, Methuselah. Enoch must have known that a great judgment would be coming on the world. And God must have told him something like, when your son dies, I'm going to send this judgment. And so Enoch takes that promise, names his son, Methuselah, dying he shall send. His death shall bring in reference to that judgment. And if you work out the math, you'll find that the flood does indeed come the very year that Methuselah dies. It's also worth noting that Methuselah's life is the longest one recorded in the Bible. It seems that God is demonstrating his long-suffering patience with man, even to this evil, evil generation. He is long-suffering, and the Bible says it's his will that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the heart of God, and we see that here in this genealogy in Genesis 5. Methuselah lived 187 years and begot 
Lamech. Again, different Lamech than the first one. This Lamech comes from Seth. After he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. The longest recorded lifespan in the Bible. And now we come to Lamech on Seth's side. The root of Lamech's name is still seen in English today. Lament, lamentation. Lamech means despairing. Lamech is despairing. Lamech lived 182 years and had a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord had cursed. So now Noah is born, and Lamech tells you what Noah means. Noah is comfort. And after he begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. So looking at these lifespans, we can pull out some interesting insights. Adam lived until Lamech, the father of Noah, was 56 years old. All that time. This means that Adam could have talked to Lamech and told him what it was like before the fall, what it was like in the garden, what happened, how God communicated how he made Adam. He could have told all of this face-to-face with Lamech, the father of Noah. These long lifespans dropped off pretty quickly after the flood. And so that tells us, it at least suggests that the flood had something to do with the decreasing lifespans. And that really does go along with that canopy theory that we talked about several Sundays ago. And that would just have blocked radiation from the sun. It would have decreased the genetic mutations. It would have provided for a denser atmosphere. There would have been a higher concentration of oxygen in the air because it was denser. And that would have let the tissues of living animals and humans to oxygenate themselves easier and more efficiently. Now, it is important that you have that compression a higher atmospheric pressure because that aids in the oxygenation. If you just throw an oxygen mask on you, it's not actually going to get more oxygen in your bloodstream. If there's a deficiency of oxygen in the air that you have available, it will help. But if there's already oxygen in your air, you're not getting more oxygen by putting on an oxygen mask. Why is that? It's because of the pressure differential in your alveoli. So if your bloodstream and the atmosphere are similar pressures, you're not going to have as much oxygen transfer. The further apart the pressure differential, the better oxygen transfer you're going to have. 
because what does it like to do? It likes to go from high concentration to low concentration. So when you have that higher pressure on the outside, it allows the oxygen to get in there more efficiently, right? So this vapor canopy would have been pressing down on the Earth's atmosphere, drawn in by gravity, and it would have made the atmosphere more dense, if you will. It would have been a higher atmospheric pressure. That really could have contributed to these long lifespans, you know, along with everything else that it afforded them. And athletes do hyperbaric therapy. They get in hyperbaric chambers, they crank up the atmospheric pressure in there, and it helps them to oxygenate their tissues, helps recovery. It's been used in the clinical side of things to help people recover from surgeries, illnesses, all of that kind of stuff. So the science is out there for sure. Just It's really interesting seeing this record and seeing these long lifespans. Uh, it's hard for us to grasp when we first start coming to the realization that this is real. Um, but there is actually some good explanation for it. And there's no reason to think that this is not an accurate historical account. And verse 32, And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Again, this doesn't mean that these were his first kids, right? But it wasn't until he was 500 years old when he had the first of these three. Noah and his sons would be preserved in the ark along with Noah's wife and Noah's son's wives. Now you're probably thinking, well, you know, this is great. We have all of these names written down and their meanings. What do I do with it? It's a good question. I want you to look at these names that you've written down, and I want you to read through them with me. We're going to go from Adam to Noah. Just follow along. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching. His death shall bring the despairing comfort or rest. That is the basis of the Christian gospel, tucked away in the Torah, in this genealogy of Genesis 5. And of course, this does carry a few implications for us. First, there's no way you'll convince me that a group of Jewish rabbis got together and decided hmm, we're going to hide the Christian gospel in our Torah. Not believing it. This also tells me that God's plan of redemption wasn't a knee-jerk reaction to Adam's sin. There was deliberate planning going into it. When did God start thinking about you? When did he start thinking about you? Ephesians 1.4 tells us that he chose you from before the foundation of the world. He knew the price that had to be paid, and he decided it's worth it. It is worth it to bring you and me into this world to redeem us. He knew that nothing short of his own death could bridge the gap between us and him. 
and he accepted that. And he decided to create Adam and Eve, knowing full well the consequences. That's love. Greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. That's love. The love of God tucked away in this genealogy. Last week, I told you that as far as genealogies go, this is a pretty interesting one. And I know you didn't believe me, but I hope that that proves it to you. I mean, this is just beyond any human contrivance. This has to come from truly the Holy Spirit. Now, next week, we'll begin chapter 6. And sometime this week, if you get a chance, I'd like you to read ahead. Go ahead and read through chapter 6, because I want you to have an idea of where we're going. We're going to be addressing some pretty hard questions next week. Why did God send the flood? Was it because the world was sinful? If that's the case, we better be looking for some life jackets, right? No, there was something way more sinister going on in the world at that time. And that's what would have caused such an extreme judgment to be necessary. We'll look at that. What did Jesus mean when he said, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be? That's in Matthew 24, 37. What did he mean by that? And what really happened during this strange episode at the beginning of chapter 6? What was all that about? And we'll address that as well. That is all I have for this morning. Let's close our study in a word of prayer.